0: You're listening to the Gates Church podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. All right. As we uh, gather back, I want to say welcome back. What we have been going through at the Gate for over a month now is a series through the book of Daniel, and it's been an incredible journey so far, and we are. Uh, currently partway through daniel chapter 2 so if you have a bible and you want to open that you can turn to daniel 2 it'll also be uh, behind us to follow along and just to catch us up a little bit king nebuchadnezzar had a dream he put out an announcement to have his wise men come to tell him the dream and the meaning and everyone said that's impossible there's no way we can do that and so nebuchadnezzar got furious and put out a decree to kill all such people because they failed to meet his um, demands. So this is kind of where we're punching in this morning. Um, and Daniel, on the other hand, has received wisdom from God to be able to communicate with the king. And he's just finished praising God and giving thanks. So we're starting at verse 24, Daniel 2:24. So Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that is you who know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding in brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces. They became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth this was the dream now we will tell the king its interpretation you o king the king of kings to whom the god of heaven has given the kingdom the power the might and the glory and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man the beasts of the field the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes and of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall not be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. The king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this word this morning may we have uh, ears to hear what you would say and eyes to see the truth as pastor greg uh, speaks to us lord Uh, may we be both encouraged and challenged Uh, may you bless greg as he shares the truth with us and, and embolden him to say just what you've laid on his heart this morning we pray this in jesus name amen
1: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Blair. Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. That's another long passage for you guys. All the kids were, all the kids did great, listening well. Um, speaking of the long passage, there's a lot going on in it, and so my plan is um, next year we're probably going to dig back into it and. Um, you know, since it is family Sunday, I don't want to keep you forever. I don't want to preach for an hour. No, no one would want that, right? Um, unless do you, do you want me to preach for an hour? No, anybody? Anybody? Yeah. There's two people. Wow, right on. Young adults, they can handle it. They, <laughs> um, they, they don't have kids. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I want to come back to it in January, I think, um, and uh, where we'll open it up more, and of course. When we'll get to see it more clearly in 2020. Huh? Huh? I had to do it. I promise I'll never say that joke again. (sighs) I just had to at least once. Anyways, on that note, um, this is this is the last time I'll be preaching in 2019. Can you believe it? This year went by so quick; it's crazy. Um, but uh, I lost my train of thought here. But yeah, anyways, I'm I'm confidently anticipating an amazing year ahead. Um, God's been stirring up a hunger and a desire for for His presence in in myself, and I know. For many of you as well. And, um, so I'm excited to see what God's preparing us for. And I should mention that I don't use the word confidently on a whim. If you know me at all, you know that I'm a, a, pretty much a realist and, 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 and quite often a risk avoider. I'm not a fan of fake hype. I don't like false confidence. But I'm confident in this that God is currently calling and preparing us and his people for renewal. And it's not just me feeling this. I've been feeling this for for the past like 4 or 5 months, just just stirring in my heart. Um it's not just me feeling this though. Pastors across Lethbridge have been feeling this way and as we meet together we're like I've been feeling this way. And I was like, I've been feeling this way too. And, and we're just praying together about that. And, and this has been happening across the, the Western church as well. And, and not just charismatic pastors that are like, ooh, I'm feeling the Spirit. You know, no, there's reformed, reformed pastors that are feeling this way too. Um, a lot of people have been sensing that, that God is preparing his people for something. Um, and we can be confident in that. Besides, as Christians, as the body of Christ, confidence is should be part of our vocabulary anyways. Right? It should be part of our culture. And I'm not talking about prideful arrogance or false expectations or overconfidence in ourselves. I'm talking about confidence in God. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, until the day of Christ Jesus. And as the psalmist writes in Psalm 71, verse 5, he writes, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. You see how that hope leads to confidence. And then as it decrees in Isaiah 32, 17, And the work of righteousness will be peace. And the service of righteousness, quietness, And confidence forever. So confidence should be part of our vocabulary. It should be part of our culture, our worship, our faith, our works for the Lord. Because we have a sure hope in a God who doesn't fail. Of course, this is a story of Christmas. Hope was revealed to us on Christmas Day when Jesus was born. And you know we're talking about Daniel 2. Not not many people turn to Daniel two, 2 for a reading of the Christmas story. I don't know if you've ever heard Daniel 2 read on, on Christmas Eve or whatever. Probably not, right? But, but this is pretty much the same hope that's shown to us in the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, of course, having a dream about multiple kingdoms replacing his own and then finally being toppled by an immovable and eternal one should, should have been a humbling lesson in who's really in control of kings and kingdoms. God is, not him, and also how temporal and fleeting his empire really is. should have been humbling for him. It isn't, as we'll see in Daniel 3. But um, from Daniel's perspective, and, and, and for those whom this story Daniel was originally recorded for, those who would read it and learn from it and be encouraged by it, the vision and interpretation of this dream was a message of hope in the midst of exile, a hope of redemption, a hope of a coming eternal kingdom, a hope which leads to confidence. This is the same hope, again, which was delivered to us on Christmas morning, and this is the same hope that will be fully revealed to us when Jesus comes again to restore all things. As the Bible scholar Paul House writes, he says, this chapter also intended to foster hope, For it shows that God will triumph, bringing salvation and deliverance to all who believe in his kingdom. Daniel kept God and kingdom in mind at all times. This focus guided his speech, for he presents God as the source of all revealed knowledge. Many of today's exiles, refugees, and stable believers share these priorities. So in other words, for Daniel and and all the, the Jewish exiles who would read this story... They needed to hear this. They needed to hear this because it gave them confidence that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. That one day this this time of trial and this time of suffering and discipline would be over. It reminded them as well that following and trusting in God with full faith and obedience in Babylon wasn't worthless, but that it was full of purpose and even fruitful. And above all, it gave them assurance that in the end, Babylon would fall and God's kingdom would rise. As Joshua Ryan Butler writes, the end of Babylon is the hope of the world. It marks not simply an end, but a beginning. The inauguration of God's kingdom come in fullness on earth as in heaven. Again, Daniel's vision is a prophetic declaration of what begins at Christmas, was culminated at the cross, and ends in Revelation, the kingdom come. And if you don't believe me, Daniel actually has further visions uh, or dreams about this later on. He gets more into detail about what this dream means, and, and at which point he sees that the king of this eternal kingdom will be called the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Does that sound familiar to you guys? It should sound familiar because the Son of Man is the name which Jesus most frequently quotes from Daniel, and uses to describe himself. He's the son of man. Anyways, in this, in this passage this morning, we start off with Daniel. Again, he's, he's rushing into the courts of the king Nebuchadnezzar to proclaim and interpret this dream. A dream that, again, troubled the king so much that he'd sentenced all his magicians and, and wise men, the Chaldeans, to death for not being able to tell him what it was and what the dream meant. He was angry, most of all, that they told him, no man can do what you ask. No man can do this. Only the gods know and they don't dwell with us. And at that, King Nebuchadnezzar is like, you guys are going to die. You're you're being sentenced to death. And so in comes Daniel, straight from a prayer meeting and worship, worship session with his friends. Cool as a cucumber. And he stands before the king and the king asks him so are you able to interpret this dream are you able to do this and, and daniel replies no man is able to do that right he says no no enchanter magician astrologer no one can do this and by saying this first of all he's he's letting all the wise men off the hook because they had just said the same thing and it and it, it infuriated the king right so he's letting them off the hook. He's agreeing with them. But in the same breath, Daniel's also deflecting the credit and attention off of himself and onto God. He said, no man can do this. This isn't because of my wisdom. This is all because of God, because God wanted to reveal this to you. And, and he does this deflecting off of himself and, and placing the, the focus onto God throughout the whole chapter. And he does this later on in, in Daniel's story, too. In, in fact, he, he takes no credit or glory for himself ever. He constantly gives it to God. And this should be the posture. That was a, that was a crazy S. This should be the posture of the church and our own lives. Right? Our own lives should, should be a declaration of not I, but Christ through me. Daniel's not in it for himself, but he, he's there to save the other wise men from death. He's there to honor the king. And above all, he's there to be a ser- humble servant of God. And from that humble posture, God works through him. And so he proclaims the dream to the king. And, and this is the dream. We're just going to go through it quickly. And of get a little bit of an understanding as, as much as we can of it because it's kind of crazy, it's kind of weird. So he says that King Nebuchadnezzar was shown an image by God of this, you know, brightly shining, terrifying, tall, colossal statue. Its head was gold, its chest and arms were silver, its torso was bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were a mix of iron and partly fired clay, which is like clay pots. So it's really fragile. So there's, there's strong iron and fragile clay mixed together, right? And then a stone came and crushed the feet, right, crushing the statue completely. And as it shattered, it blew away like dust in the wind, while the stone became this great mountain which filled the whole earth. Again, kind of weird, but okay. So what does it mean? Well, after Daniel tells him what his dream was, then he interprets it, interprets it, and he tells him that the head of gold represents the kingdom and reign of king Nebuchadnezzar he's, he calls him the king of kings because he's a king over a bunch of kings and then he and then he says the other sections of the statue are all kingdoms and empires that will come after Babylon until finally the last kingdom will be this mix of peoples and it'll be this it'll be brittle at points right with that clay basically it's it's a mix because it's basically a mix of iron and, and essentially clay pots again, right? Which is what fired clay looks like. So while the interpretation of this dream sounds weird, um, what's the point of showing all these different kingdoms? Um, it's not actually that strange for them at that time. According to a commentary I read, it was, it was pretty common in those days, actually, to separate uh, time and, and, like, history, separate history, Uh, into periods of four or five according to the length and reign of whichever empires ruled. So we would, you know, we, when we record time, we're like, oh, centuries or decades or whatever, but they they would record time according to the length that these empires would rule. And so it's not actually that strange when you think of how they interpreted um, history. The only difference here being that this dream was proclaiming the future and therefore proclaiming the sovereignty of God. About this, theologian Brennan Breed writes, the 4 Kingdoms scheme transforms a chaotic mass of events involving subjugation and brutal oppression into a logical, divinely ordained sequence that would result in the redemptive transformation of the world. As a schema, it helped persuade Jews that God had not abandoned them and that history was not an inexorable series of meaningless brutalities. I'll get into that a little more in a bit, but on that end, as you can probably guess, there, there are many ideas and interpretations about which kingdoms are being represented in this statue, which empires are being represented here. Some interpretations are more crazy than others. You can search on the internet and find lots of weird stuff about Daniel. Like everyone's homemade webpage is like, it means this. It's like, uh, it's endless. Um, But most scholars agree, according to the way that history has played out, that the kingdoms being referred to here are, and you can throw that statue up if you want, you know that picture. So that's kind of, someone's drawing of what the statue looks like um so um, so first of all of course babylon represented by the the gold head right and following babylon's reign we'll see the, the medo-persian empire which is represented by the, the silver body which ruled from 539 to th- 331 bc after that the empire of greece from 331 B.C. to 168 B.C., um, be represented next. And they gained power, of course, through the leadership of Alexander the Great, who, interestingly enough, died near the city of Babylon while trying to um, uh, rebuild the Tower of Babel, which is interesting. I'll let you think about that. Finally, the legs of iron most likely represented the great Roman Empire, which reigned from 168 B.C., to approximately 476 A.D. And in later on in Daniel, all of these beasts are labeled, or all of these um, empires are labeled as ungodly beasts. And um, we see that imagery in Revelation as well. And, and they can all be seen as these Babylonian archetypes, right, of empires who conquer and gain their kingdoms by force and oppression, seeking to rule and prosper without God, even in opposition to god but none of them last all of them are brought down and moving on there's certainly debate about the the brittle feet of the statue and what what the feet represents that the iron and the clay mixed together some think it think, some think it represents the fall of the roman empire Some think it might represent the brittle alliances of of medieval kingdoms made through intermarriages of members of royalty because it says a mixing of marriages in verse 43. Um, We all know how that works, right? You know, the the princess of some king goes off to some other country and marries the prince. And and so they have an alliance now, except they go to war anyways 20 years later, right? It doesn't doesn't mean it's it's brittle, right? Um, So that could be. Uh, some think defeat represent the fragile alliances and economies between the countries of the world following the Roman Empire, which include today. And so we see that we have, we have strength and we have brittle parts of alliances between countries with trade and economy and, and war and, and all that other fun stuff. So it could be all of those. For, for all we know, it could mean all of the above. A lot of the time prophecies are pointing to many different things. But uh, most scholars think that the mix of strong and, and brittle parts of the feet certainly fit with the, fits with the idea that the Roman Empire, even with all its power and glory, had found itself stretched thin, trying to manage and control the many peoples and cultures throughout the known world. It also kind of became politically unstable. And this is, in fact, the setting in which Jesus was born and was crucified when the rock would crush the feet of the statue. Again, as it says in Daniel two, forty four, forty five. 45. And in those days, those kings, in, those days of, in the days of those kings, if I can read, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain, by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So the dream is certain, its interpretation of this eternal rock crushing the, stat, the, this, the statue is sure, and while we may never know what these different kingdoms are or what the feet truly represent, the Really, the ending is the focal point of the dream. As Ernest Lucas writes, for the original Jewish readers, the vision's main point is not the details of the course of events in history, but the fact that history is under the control of God and that it has a purpose which will be achieved. In other words, we can be confident in this. As citizens of God's kingdom and exiles in this broken world, this will come to pass. God is true. God is faithful. God is sovereign. God will destroy Babylon and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As uh, Joshua Butler again writes, God wages holy war on the old to bring in the new. God takes down the empire to bring in the kingdom. The gospel story demonstrates that God's holy war is a source of hope for the downtrodden, a world in which all too often the powerful use their strength to oppress the weak. The rich use their advantage to exploit the poor, and leaders use their influence to be served rather than to serve. This does not legitimate the world's unjust structures. It confronts them. In a world where structures arising from our histories of rebellion seem so intractable, bigger than our ability to heal, God's coming holy war is a source of hope. This is our source of hope. Though I'm sure all this talk of holy war and all these empires being crushed by a rock might sound extreme or violent to some of you, conjuring images of the Crusades or something like that. But let's not forget how the empires are actually toppled by this rock. Colossians 2.15 tells us, it says, In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. In other words, While all these empires raged and violently conquered one another in rebellion and war and oppression, Jesus conquers and shames them not by violence or oppression, but by serving us through humility and sacrifice, by taking the violence and godlessness on himself. He's like Daniel right? But better, like him, Jesus set aside his glory. He humbly came into the world to bring hope, to be our salvation, and to glorify God. And his crown was a crown of thorns. His royal robe was given to him in jest, and his coronation and victory over Babylon and over sin was won at the cross in his death. And in his resurrection. So we see Jesus is the rock of ages. Cleft for us. In order to free us from the tyranny of sinful Babylon. And to establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. A kingdom that will tear down the injustices and sin of godless kings. And authoritarian empires. An eternal kingdom, as it says in Revelation. That will have no more tears or sorrow or pain, or death. That's the ending of the story which was revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is the hope that our broken world longs for. Like the popular Christmas hymn declares, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. This is it. Romans 5, 1-2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This means we are citizens of God's kingdom because of Jesus, because he established his kingdom. And so what is our response? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because of the cross, because of the resurrection, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And and it's no secret, we all know that this, this city, this province, this country... Even this world, especially this world, is filled with many, way too many people living in hopelessness. Whether it's in poverty or or anxiety or depression or situations of abuse or loneliness or addictions or family struggles, the list goes on. People need to see and know hope. Humans long for hope. And we know the source. We know the source. And so we need to show the world where to find it through our words and our actions. Because hope isn't just a light at the end of the tunnel for us. It's a light of Christ that we carry confidently and boldly within us. We carry that hope to the places we find ourselves in. Daniel knew the source and and. Of hope in that chaotic moment he was confident in it as we as we learned last time when we went to the first half of Daniel he was confident in it as he set his eyes on the Lord and in the midst of the chaos he he became a, a messenger of that hope he even rejoiced in it and he worshiped God he rejoiced in the hope And like him, in all this tragedy around us, the world should also hear us and be like, how, how are they so hopeful? How are they so sympathetic and yet so hopeful? How can they keep on going even in the midst of this mess? How can they rejoice when they don't have a job? How can they stand and sing praises to their God at a funeral? How can they be so tirelessly and how can they so tirelessly and eagerly feed the poor, clothe the naked, and stand against injustice? And we can tell them because we're citizens of a, of a kingdom that will not perish, because Jesus is alive and we're alive with Him, because we have a hope that will not disappoint. Romans five five says, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. This hope will not disappoint. Or as Marshall Siegel writes, this hope is as alive as Jesus is right now. And we need that. We need that. We need a hope that's alive and doesn't lead to disappointment. Because let's be honest, sometimes hope definitely has the ability to breed disappointment. That is, if we're in a tough place in life or if we put our hope and faith in the wrong thing, and this can cause us to to quit or become depressed or frustrated or angry. And and this is the very reason that God commands us not to worship or turn to idols or, or worldly things. Because placing our hope in idols or in our retirement plan or our government or even in ourselves will always and eventually disappoint God doesn't want us to be disappointed. So on that end, when God says something will happen, we can be certain in it. And while we wait for God's timing in it, we can actually rejoice as if it's already happened. That's what biblical hope is. It's not a wish that you hope, you know, I wish that's going to happen, it might happen. No, biblical hope transcends time. If God, because if God says it, it will be. And, and for us, the, the birth and, of course, the cross are even greater signs that, that, that these things will certainly come to pass and should fill us with even more confidence and joy. Hebrews 11, verse 1, I would encourage you to read the whole thing. Hebrews 11, I'll just read verse 1 for, for, for this morning. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is assurance. Faith is the assurance of hope. So let me ask, how can we have faith if we don't have certain hope? The rest of the chapter goes on to describe all the biblical heroes who lived their lives in faith and obedience as if God's promises to them had already come to pass. But yet most of them never even got to see the promises fully fulfilled. Daniel's one of them but yet they still lived in a, in, in a way like they had seen them fulfilled. That's how sure their hope was. All based on what God promised them and how they'd seen God work in the past. And, and unlike them, we know about the birth of Jesus. We know about the cross. We know about the resurrection. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Our hope should be even more sure than them. In contrast to that, again, if our hope is just a wish, I don't know what that noise is. Is it my beard? Didn't think it was as long as Pastor Frank's, but. Yeah, if our hope is just a wish, then then we're not going to live as if anything's coming, right? We're not going to look forward to it. It's not going to be the sole thing that we that we strive to live for and prepare our hearts for. We're going to live for something else. We're going to look to something else. Probably live selfishly. Try to live our best life now. And if we're not confident, our our faith will be shaky at best. It'll be conservative and it'll be careful in obedience like dipping our toes into the water, right? We're not sure if we should jump in. Like, oh man, I hope this is the right path, but I'm not totally sure, so maybe I'm going to try something else too. Keep my options open, right? But if we have certain hope, if we have a full assurance of hope, then we can dive in. We can sacrifice. We can give. We can rejoice. We can give our full selves to living for God, knowing that our work's not in vain. On that note, I, I, I do often wonder at Christians these days, and I, I've brought this up before, but I, it's worth bringing up again. Um, with all the chaos going on in the world and, and the morality struggles we're, we're having even in our own country and at our schools and with our government, and, and whether it's racism or, or abortions or, or death or corrupt government leaders or abusive bosses and NHL hockey coaches or mass shootings or whatever it is, I often find the knee-jerk reaction for Christians—not always, but often—seems to be to, you know, freak out about it, run to the hills and surrender as if the world's ending. Get your end-times kit with your flashlight and your fire starter and go out in the mountains, right? And if not that, then 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 to lash out in anger or, or condemnation at God or the world or the church. Either way, quite often we end up looking just as hopeless as the world. But the truth is that that if our confidence truly rests in the cross and in Jesus returning again as that rock to to crush sin and to restore all things, then we'll act like it, especially in the midst of trials. We'll be people of hope, unshakable, unmovable in our faith and our desire to prepare our hearts for that day. Regardless of how hopeless the world looks or how hopeless our situation is, we'll keep moving forward as the body of Christ because we know that God is faithful. And not that we're supposed to, like I said a couple weeks ago, not that we're supposed to hide our feelings or pretend like everything's all right all the time. Quite the opposite. We should actually be realistic and honest about the problems in our lives and in others' lives and, and in the world, just like Daniel was. He wasn't hiding the fact that there was, there was turmoil going on in that moment. He was realistic about it. But Like him, we, we haven't been given the strength of, of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God only to fall into despair in the midst of whatever we're going through, right? But rather like Daniel and, and the exiles of Babylon, we've been given this hope so that we can get through, so that we can persevere. The Apostle Peter Peter reminds Christians in exile in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, when he says to them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, Unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, we've been born into a living hope. And that means that this is this is a life change. It's a new life. It's a new perspective. And it's with us now and it's waiting for us in eternity. And so if you, if you haven't already, or if you just need to refocus this morning, place your hope and confidence in the one who will not disappoint. Not in the, in the fleeting empires that crumble, not in things which are destroyed by moth and rust, but in Jesus the King. So that in seasons of of trial and persecution, we're we're strengthened with the hope of his spirit within us to persevere in faith and look forward to what's ahead. In times of injustice, we can be reassured that when Jesus comes again, he will judge rightly and perfectly. In times of sickness or or in struggles with, with mental health or injury, we can rest in the hope of healing, either now or in eternity. When our flesh is failing, we have the hope that our spirit is being made strong. In times of sadness, we're strengthened with with all the hope of Christ that, that he sympathizes with us. And also that one day all tears will be wiped away. In times of prosperity and joy, we can be strengthened and encouraged with the truth that when Jesus comes again, it'll be even better. And in knowing that, it'll be even better that there's more to life than all of this. We can give generously and joyfully. We won't be hoarding our stuff and keeping it for ourselves because that's all we have. And in times of helplessness and loneliness, we we have the hope of a God who comforts and restores us. And in times of mourning or in death, we have full assurance of hope in resurrection life. And in times of sinful guilt, weakness and despair, we can have full assurance of hope in the grace of Christ to forgive us and the strength of Christ to move us into good works. As 2 Corinthians 3 verse 4 says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So no matter what the circumstance, Jesus is our confidence in God. Even when things don't go the way we expect, if things are looking hopeless, we can be confident in the rock who's gone before us, who gives us a strong foundation and has prepared the way for us. I want to end this morning with a reflection and meditation on Psalm 37. And so as I read this, I would just encourage you to, to, to focus on that, to set your hearts on the Lord, to let the Word speak to your heart this morning. Psalm 37, 5 to 9. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. And he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. And your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Over the man who carries out evil devices. Like King Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. That rock that comes to crush Babylon expands into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Through Jesus, that is our inheritance. Trust in him. Place your faith in him. Be confident in living for him.